Hi, I'm Nick. I'm Rory. And I'm Jay. And this is Midnight Chats, an Octavigant companion show where we sit down with your favorite paranormal authors, investigators, and researchers and have a chat about their work, the phenomenon, and all the strangeness in between. On this episode, we are joined by author, psychic medium, paranormal investigator, television personality, and psychic vampire, Michelle Bellinger. Yes, and I think you said that about as close to right as you are going to get. Yeah, I mean, it was better than all the other times I tried to say it during the interview yeah. when I was talking to her in fa- in the face. Yes, yeah, Bellinger or something like that. It's, yeah. it's French, you know. Bellinger? I, I, once again, I would love to reiterate, I am a better writer than I am a speaker in just about every metric. Uh, and I believe that comes out quite frequently. Uh, but no, this was a, this was a great time. We had an awesome discussion about vampires, uh, about the paranormal and where it intersects with the queer community. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. I had a great time and it was a lot. Like, like you said, we covered a broad spectrum of topics and uh, Michelle was like like quick right off the new 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 the stuff right off the top and yeah. that and it was unbelievably fascinating yeah no and she actually told some stories about Bram Stoker that I didn't know and uh that will forever I feel like I I am a bad bad horror horror fan I need to I need to go to the shame jail for 200 years uh, to be fair it seemed like they were pretty deep cuts so I I don't care they were awesome I uh, I'm gonna be obsessing over some of them uh, Michelle talking about their experience in the goth community during the satanic panic was giving me um, vicarious flashbacks to when my parents were in a D&D group on the MSU state campus uh, right the year after that poor young man took his life and they mm. were like his absence hung over that campus like an angry ghost you know it's funny that I couldn't help but notice when during the interview like in the background of the of her uh, of her shot was uh, a whole bunch of like tabletop books and I had to fight every urge to just like go into a whole on conversation about that again if we'd only known there would have been a question about it but next time we have her on now we know we'll ambush her with role playing questions I, I actually don't quote me on this but I think she might have actually been involved with World of Darkness in writing some material Michelle come LARP with us <laughs> <laughs> I mean she definitely had she definitely uh Recognized when you drop Vampire the Requiem. Oh yeah, I, I wasn't looking at the camera at that yeah, time. Yeah, she so. uh, seemed to know what you were talking about immediately. So yeah, that, that tracks. All right, well, why don't we just let him listen to it? Let's do it. On the line with Michelle Bellinger. Michelle, thank you so much for giving us some of your time today. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. So getting right into it, our first question is one that we ask all of our guests as we are a book club, which is what are you currently reading and what sort of books do you gravitate towards? Okay, so uh, I am about to pick up and reread This Is How You Lose the Time War because of the whole Bicolus Dicolus thing going on. Um you have to live online to have that make a lick of sense. <laughs> I am aware of what you are talking about. <laughs> exactly, that, exactly. That tracks that you know, and um, I have no idea. <laughs> my spies are everywhere. <laughs> uh, but actually, the, the one that I'm looking to dive into is, it just arrived today, which is a study on near-death experiences and beliefs in the afterlife from indigenous cultures. Oh. Um, that fairly is- hefty pricey academic tome so that is right up our alley that is fascinating uh we have done a couple books on ndes and every time i am a little too interested Mm. um all right so getting into our next question here so we know from your website that you identify as a psychic vampire and we've encountered and we've encountered sometimes contradictory definitions of what exactly that means so we wanted to get your take to in your own words what is a psychic vampire and how did you come to realize that you were one 
So a psychic vampire is a person who needs to regularly and actively take human vital energy in order to maintain their health and well-being. Now, in other like self-defense books are going to be a psychic vampire is somebody who feeds off of people, who steals your energy, who... Uh, and the only significant difference is one of choice and volition, and that comes down to personal practice. There are plenty of people out there who are vampiric. They don't necessarily realize it, and they are a drain on the people around them. Uh, they, you know, they'll incite emotional reactions in order to get the maximum effect for what they need. Uh, and mechanically, we're similar. Uh, when was it? it? It was ages ago. Um, you know, I was, a, I was a tiny tot where I was like, I think I might be vampiric. This is weird. Uh, mm -hmm. Which seems like an extraordinary thing to like come up with. But I was raised in a family where psychic stuff was fairly normal. Um, you know, I was allowed to talk about that. That was a thing that existed. Uh, we, we had conversations about energy and the way that like things could transfer over different distances. So it's not a huge leap to go if people can give and take energy or heal with energy that there's this thing that we can like tap into and sense that some people can not only tap into it but maybe need to um and that's me now I, i'm curious i mean so you, you mentioned there the need to do it um i guess what happens if you don't uh, i mean obviously in fiction we have the vampire turning into a shriveled corpse i presume that doesn't happen <laughs> No, no, there's there's no no coffins or, or things involved. Uh, I might be a goth, but I'm not that goth. <laughs> <laughs> Is this something, though, that your family was already aware of and were knowledgeable of? Or was were you kind of the first case of this happening in your family? So I wasn't the first that it happened to, but I was the first in my immediate family. My when I met my maternal grandfather in my 20s, uh, I, it became pretty clear that this came from him. Um, but he had been out of my life. There was a very bitter divorce. It was very messy family stuff. Uh, so I was kind of on my own for uh, you know a good decade and a half to try to figure out like what what is this? Because you know it's hard enough to be like, hey, I'm psychic. Maybe I sense spirits and stuff. You know, a little bit less problematic at a certain point in the '70s when there was a lot of a lot of TV shows and a lot of books and a lot of conversation about you know espers and psi and ESP. But also to go that extra step of like, I think energy exists and I think I'm taking it from people around me in order to proactively self-heal and keep my body going. That's weird. Okay. Now, I mean, so I, again, this is something that we've seen multiple definitions of. I mean, what, what to you is energy? What is that hmm. vital force that you're pulling on? So energy is this blanket term for in my opinion, a whole lot of different things. Uh, it is, the best way I would describe it is that it's, it's a non-physical force that seems to vitalize people, places, things. Um, it's like, like the force, mm -hmm. <laughs> like literally like yeah. Jedi. Uh, but that's inspired by uh, a lot of Asian uh, mysticism, like Qigong, where there's uh, this sort of like vital power that flows through natural places and the land and keeps people going like if you have high chi or low chi uh it reading about people who have low chi in in certain um texts sounds like what i experience it's just we don't have a term for that over here so we're like guess it's a vampire uh but i think it's also more complicated than uh some people will equate the soul with energy and uh, spirit with energy, and there's a there's a fine line between something that is made up of energy and something that is like if you take it, you've eaten their soul, and it's it's that's not the case at all. Um, in my worldview and my experience, like an embodied being is both body and energy. There is a a part of you that is a a complex being made up of stable energy and flowing energy in the same way that your body is bones and flesh and blood. Um, and it's not like I'm carving out the bones or the flesh. Uh, it is closer to the blood of the, you know, the spirit or the soul. Uh, it's something that is replenishable uh, and renewable and does not necessarily harm the other person if it's taken in moderation. 
And this is something that uh, we were actually going to ask later, but we can get to it right now. So another thing that we know about you from your website is, in addition to being a paranormal investigator, you are the owner and operator of a haunted Airbnb, which is awesome. That's a great sentence to get to say out loud. <laughs> uh, now, we were curious, though. I mean, what is the is there any interplay between your psychic vampirism and you know the par- other paranormal phenomenon? I mean, if these ghosts are energetic bodies is that something that you could tap into or is that something that you'd even want to do first all of my psychic abilities are wound up with that way that my abilities present like my psychic vampirism you can't take the psychic out of that um it is how i process uh all of it and it's also what makes me a really good protector uh and also uh I don't know, fighter against the bad things. If you've ever seen some of the uh, darker episodes of Paranormal State, I'm usually on the front lines being like, come on, come on, you know, throw down with me. Because if you can, if spirits are energy and you have an inborn ability to connect to energy and take it from someone or to significantly influence their energy, of course you have an edge when it comes to fighting with a spirit when such is required. I mean, most ghosts and spirits are honestly harmless. And then every once in a while, you just, you just need to sucker punch something. <laughs> true, now, I mean, true that. Now those, I mean, those darker entities, uh, one thing that we've often talked about, uh, especially some of the books we've read by, say, like Amy Bruni or Brian Kano, uh, is the, how loaded the term demon has become in, mm. in paranormal TV specifically. So I guess, how broad is your umbrella? Do you think that there are that there are non-human entities like that? What about things like cryptids? Are these things within your field of interest? I I believe that there's, oh God, there's so many different types of spirits that like trying to create an encyclopedia would be impossible. Uh, are there non-human entities? Absolutely. Do we call things that we don't understand demons way too easily? Also, absolutely. Um, I've got a degree in comparative religious studies. I actually took demonology from the Jesuits in my college. Uh, so I, I have a little bit of a background in, in like not only, you know, the, the, the sociological and theological ideas of what demons are, but, but also like how they inform myth, folklore, and society. Uh, and it really depends on a person's perspective, what they're going to call a demon. Uh, paranormal reality TV has sort of used it as the default for anything that's a little dark and doesn't seem to be human. Uh, I disagree in, I would say, 98% of the cases. Uh, and every once in a while, I run into something where I'm like, well, I have no better word to call this than demon because it is non-human. It's clearly very intelligent. It is clearly very malevolent. And for whatever reason, it's really out to mess with these people. Like it has just a, a fixation on that. And that's sort of my, my checklist. Not human, smart, like really smart, uh, malevolent, like demonstrably, like it's not just a, a poor misunderstood thing that's sort of flailing. Like it's actively just trying to cause harm, doesn't care about anything else, and is also fixated on causing that harm on people for no reason that I can really see that has been deserved by the people now when you say causing harm i mean what are we talking about are we talking about some sort of emotional manipulation a poltergeist phenomenon uh it's it's a checklist but in my opinion the most damaging harm done by any spirit attack uh is emotional uh it's the easiest to overlook like something that just squats in an area and makes people start to feel things that they might not otherwise feel, riles up their depression, riles up their anger, um, just inserts, like, like is a gradual creeping engine of intrusive thoughts. Uh, I know that, you know, technically that's like spirit obsession, if you are going from like the technical demonology side of things. Uh, I find it more more damaging than like even intermittent bouts of possession where something steps into a person and is controlling them or like talking through them because possession can be something that is uh actually a a useful thing like there's a number of mystical traditions that use trans possessory states as a way of communicating with spirits technically a lot of the mediums from the 19th century and whatnot like channeling is possession Uh, it's wealth 
the light, yeah. like you're, you're letting something step in and talk through you and use your body as an instrument. Uh, but consent is, is the key thing there. Yeah. Um, but if something's just sort of like hanging out and making everybody angry and fight and you, you own those emotions as yours, you don't think that something is attacking you. You just start to act out. I've I've seen enough hauntings where that's that's the worst in my opinion. Like that causes the most long, lasting harm to people. Now, I mean, I ask what's probably a very difficult question. Mm. I guess when you're looking at these cases, is there any way to determine? I guess when is a situation where someone is perhaps being urged towards those darker uh, darker thoughts versus things like you know clinical depression, other forms of mm. mental illness? Well, first of all, never assume that it's paranormal before ruling out everything that is real world things always check for stuff um could be a brain tumor like make sure that all of that stuff has been ruled out mm. there it does get tangled and complicated I, I i strongly recommend any team that is dealing with what they think might be possession or demonic influence make sure you have a licensed therapist counselor or psychiatrist either involved directly or on call uh, so that you can have like an accurate educated assessment of, of what's going on what, what ends up being complicated is someone who is being attacked by an entity uh, demon or otherwise that's traumatic so there is like actual emotional harm psychological harm that will come from that so you will have a person who could be suffering from depression and it might not have started out as the actual cause of stuff the haunting is making them depressed and you can chicken and the egg it and the end of the day the main thing at least for the teams that i've ever worked with is trying to make sure that everybody's okay in, in the location um, and that usually involves making sure you are dealing with all aspects of it so i'm always recommending that people go get a really good therapist to just process what they've gone through, whether they think it was real or not. Um, and yeah, there are circumstances where I, I think the one that was the weirdest was this woman was going through menopause and it was really obvious she was going through menopause, but she was sure, she was 100% sure that every time her skin got prickly and she got really hot, it was a spirit. Like her hot flashes, <laughs> those, those were demons like like all of all of the stuff like like she was she was sure and you could just sit her down and be like okay so birds and the bees are like this and 48 year old <laughs> women sometimes start to have these feelings and yes it can affect the way that you experience life and everything and if you maybe take an estrogen replacement and all of the demons go away it was probably just menopause yeah. mm -hmm. now i mean obviously that sounds a very like, very noble approach uh <laughs> investigation. I'm I'm curious uh, when you were working specifically under the context of a TV show, was it more difficult to kind of have those safeguards in place? Hmm. Well, with Paranormal State, we actually had uh, we had a psychologist who worked with us for every episode. He wasn't on every episode, but we always had him around, um, and it was partly because we would get called in to suspected uh, demonic cases way too frequently, uh, and there's always always some mental health issues that are wound up with those like there's there's no separating it uh like i said if it is one of the truly rare instances where somebody is being preyed upon by an entity there's going to be trauma and damage done to that person as well uh but also you need someone who can be like this is just classic schizophrenia like this is this is what's going on uh, because schizophrenia, I, I grew up with, um, my, my great aunt Rita worked at Cleveland Psychiatric Institute, um, which has since been shut down and raised. It's one of those places from like the 70s and 80s that we do investigations at now because terrible things went on there. Um, but I would volunteer with her as a teen. And I mean, I've, I've seen some stuff and I understand how someone who is like profoundly um, untreated schizophrenia if you've never seen that before it doesn't seem possible that the human mind could do that to a person 
it, it seems like it, it has to be some sort of evil force doing that to them. Yeah. Um, okay, so changing gears a little, mm. I, as you might know, we recently read a book by Claude Lacatour, which explored the folkloric beliefs regarding ghouls and revenants and how those were co-opted into the modern movie image of the vampire. However, that book kind of stopped there. It didn't go into how that image of the vampire was then translated into a modern vampire culture. So we wanted to take a moment to talk about that culture. How did the modern vampire community form and what relationship does it actually have to the vampire myth? There are two threads that sort of braid in and out. And one is the influence of pop culture portrayals. And the other one is the influence of magic and occultism. Uh, so the psychic vampire, the, the very term, comes from 19th century occultism uh, and is used especially among a, a group called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Oh. Uh, Spoiler, Bram Stoker was very, very close uh, and intertwined with mul multiple people who were involved in the Golden Dawn. We don't have uh, an absolute proof that he was involved in it himself, but uh, when all of your friends are involved in a thing and everybody who comes to your dinner parties is talking about it, at the very least, he was hip deep in, in their lore. That is amazing. I have, I've been obsessed with Bram Stoker is among my list mm -hmm. of heroes, and I never knew that. Now my brain is... Uh, going to be obsessed over that for the rest of the night. <laughs> so, so straight up, um, the reason that Her Sir Henry Irving, well, okay, so the reason Dracula does not appear in mirrors is because of a conversation that happened between Bram Stoker, Oscar Wilde, and their friend from the Isle of Man, who we only know as Hummy Beg, um, weird little nickname, we don't know who he actually was. Uh, and they were talking about energy and, and magnetism and whether or not a person can project their persona, their, their aura in a way that it will be filmed because, you know, photographs were a fairly new thing. Uh, Sir Henry Irving, who was the actor that Stoker managed, was was known for his mesmeric personality, his, his ability to like inhabit these characters and just sort of like exude this personality. Uh, it had profound impact on Stoker. Uh, one of the first productions uh, that he went to that like made him basically fall in love with Irving as an actor. Stoker had a fit, like he fell out of his chair. He fainted <laughs> just, just in the, the aura of this man's uh, powerful uh, acting presence, which they argued was potentially animal magnetism, mesmerism, like, like they had a lot of words for it. Uh, vampirism was another one that came up for Sir Henry Irving. He was kind of the poster boy for a psychic vampire at that time. So they're like, well, can can that weird thing he does, can you photograph it? Because Irving was weird about being photographed in anything, anything but in character. Uh, so Oscar Wilde ends up writing The Picture of Dorian Gray, talking about capturing the soul in a painting. And Stoker instead kind of takes it into the fact that you don't have a reflection, that like some part of you isn't caught in the real world. Um, anyway, so there's the occult side of psychic vampires exist as a thing, and those influenced several several people, notable people, writing about the vampires that we tell stories about. Uh, so there's like little bits that kind of filter in from real people. Uh, how we end up with a vampire community uh, is, personally, I blame Dark Shadows. Okay, that's interesting because I, I the, that was apparently when my uh, when my mom was in high school, she talked about running home from the bus stop to go catch the new Dark Shadows. She was obsessed with it. My mom did too, and used yeah, almost the exact same language of like like rushing home to get it. So you know, Christopher Lee's Dracula, um, Nosferatu, everything that came before the the vampire was a bad guy. Like the vampire was this unhuman predator, uh, and always had to be destroyed at the end. Like it was it was more the hero's quest. And then you have Barnabas Collins, who is the reluctant vampire. He's the vampire becomes humanized, and his vampire inspires uh, another writer, Anne Rice, who kind of takes it even further and makes her vampires rock stars and sexy and like like really like digs into like this whole other world of these 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 beings that look like people but are categorically not people, and it spoke to whole generations of outsiders, of, of folks who just felt like they didn't quite click with everybody else around them. Um, arguably, I'd say anybody who 
whether they were neurodivergent, whether they, I mean, a lot of queer folk really, really resonated with the vampires. Uh, it was a, that was a whole thing, uh, still is. As the vampire became this sort of poster child for everyone who stood on the outside of a society looking in, that's where we start to get a vampire culture. We get to have those people who identify with the vampire either because they're vampiric, literally from like a psychic standpoint, whether they drink blood because there are those who do that. Um, Again, let me say all of that is with consent. That's not just, you know, somebody chasing, you know, Mary down the street and taking her blood. That's that's a crime. Yeah, that's a crime. That's also how you get shot these days. Like, just don't do that. (laughs) But also the vampire as a philosophical character. Uh, I I usually will liken it to uh, the cowboy in country Western music. You know, that cowboy is pretty divorced from the actual cowboys. It's more this romanticized ideal of, you know, free range, open, like kind of wild, live free. Uh, And there are definitely people who have never seen a cow in their lives who are so into that aesthetic that they wear the they they wear the whole like they wear cowboy drag, basically. Uh, And there are definitely folks in the vampire community where it's the same thing. Like the vampire is their thing. And that's what they dress as. It's, it informs personal philosophy. Less the predator and more the outsider aspect of it, the sort of tragic outsider. Interesting. So, I mean, when you look at the community, is it, I mean, I guess how divided is it between people who are adopting the aesthetic as a lifestyle mm. versus those who experience psychic vampirism or uh, engage in blood drinking? So there is... The Atlanta Vampire Alliance did a fairly extensive demographic, uh, basically a, a survey of the community. And it's the folks for whom the vampire is more like a, an identifying force, they identify as a vampire, make up the bulk of the community. Um, I'd say easily 60%, if not 80%. And then you have a smaller percentage of people who are vampiric one way or the other. And those, you know, break off into smaller and smaller subgroups of exclusively psychic vampires, where they only take energy, exclusively blood drinkers, where that's the thing that they do, Uh, folks that identify as hybrids who take a little bit of energy, sometimes take a little blood, sometimes use the blood as the focus for the energy. Um, And then there's also uh, folks for whom it's more a vampire is to them what witch is for a a witchcraft practitioner like it's it's more of a magical identity and it informs their their magic their ritual just sort of like the the archetype through which they channel that side of themselves in some ways it reminds me we've had we have this conversation quite often in terms of different things but like almost like an archetype for that individual you know, is what that yeah. is what that is for for them. Like, for me, like I like a lot of what we've talked about has remind me so much of what I do in my practice for of druidry. Right? We even mm-hmm. talked about energy, which they call nuefre, well, which I'm sure I butchered because it's Welsh and I cannot speak Welsh. <laughs> we are very Midwestern. I can't stress this enough. Yeah, very Midwestern. <laughs> I'm from Ohio. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So like. I don't know, so much of this like resonates in the same exact way as how like I, I how I look at my own like practice of druidry, which I th- I find fascinating within it of itself, you know. My my personal take has always been this, and and thank you for for bringing that up because that's that's a hundred percent how it works. Uh, some people there's something about them that's different, that is magical, that like there's there's things that they can do. And they don't necessarily have a good explanation for why they are the way they are. They just know that this is something that they were born with. Like there, there mm-hmm. is something that calls to them, that they carry deep in their soul, down in their bones. And for some people, the word that they will like click with is witch. And witch did not work for me for, for ever so many reasons. Um, medium didn't work for me either. Uh, Druid didn't work for me, like where my particular cluster of abilities and affinities, vampire was the word that encapsulates both how I experience my particular magic and like the artistic aesthetic of that magic. 
No, I totally, I totally vibe with that. Cause like, even when I started my, my search for my like new identifier, magical practice or whatever you want to call it, like I didn't, I don't know. I didn't like seek out druidry. It's almost like it sought out me, you know, cause I remember even messaging these two specifically and just being like, I think I'm going to like look up classes on druidry. And it was, it was out of nowhere. Like I'm, I'm, you know, by my national, like my family came uh, from Ireland and, you know, from the Celtic area. So of course I'm drawn to that in some ways, but I had never in my life before that practiced or looked at Druidry as a, uh, as a practice. And now I'm what, three, almost three and a half years deep into my studies of Druidry specifically on top of practicing witchcraft for many years and whatever. But like, it is just, it felt right, you know? And that's yeah. kind of the, vi the the same vibe I'm getting is like, it just, it feels right. And that's how you know it's, like, to me, that's how you know it's legit. It's a thing, you know? Yeah, and and that is, that is my thing. I mean, that's why I ended up writing the Codex so many years ago, all the vampire ritual book stuff. Like, uh, I'm, I'm the person who wrote the vampire version of the Wiccan Read. Like, that's, that's just, yeah, no, that's, that's just my thing. Now, I, I'm curious, though. I mean, so uh, full disclosure, vampires have never been my thing. I, I've always <laughs> of all the monsters, oh, they're the guy. ones that interested me the least for some reason. And I've always been curious, you know, as so we have uh, what seems to be a thriving vampire community. What do you think it is about the vampire that lends itself to creating these sorts of real life communities versus say, why don't we have werewolf communities and Frankenstein mm. communities? Well, spoiler. There are werewolf groups. I'm gonna go um, put, shove my other foot in my mouth. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's okay. Like they, they are, they're a lot quieter. Like, like I, um, so one of the reasons the vampire community ended up being very um, in the face of the media is back in the first version of the Satanic Panic, you know, in the 80s and 90s, um, the goth subculture particularly like really came under fire uh, in in ways that like the whole drag queen story hour stuff is giving me bad flashbacks to the way that we would get like kicked out of spaces just for existing oh, yeah. as weird kids in black. Yeah. Like, like, and, and they would like, I mean, they, they wrote books, they went on TV shows, concerned mothers of America were sure that goth kids were corrupting your children. And we were all perverts and we were all like sacrificing kids in woods and whatnot. And I've got a friend who spent 20 years on death row because of that bullshit, Damien Eccles. Wow. Um, so like, there's there were like these cultural and like political pressures to honestly like just wipe us out and somebody needed to step forward and be like look our community isn't like that so i ended up being uh the media liaison for God, 20 years of just if there was a tv show or a talk show host or somebody who wasn't, let me see, who did I turn down? Ricky Lake, Maury Povich, uh, Tyra Banks, Geraldo. Um, the ones where I'm like, this is just going to be a sh 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 <laughs> it's just going to be bad. Um, I, I would go on and be like, this is what our community is. And yes, people do this and people do this. And no, in fact, nobody is taking your children and stealing them and like drinking your blood in the woods. That's just dumb. <laughs> But the like the the werewolf community, there there are plenty of people who are who are Therian, who are other kin. Like there are there are, if you can imagine it, there's probably a community of them. I know there's, there's a whole mermaid community now, um, and that's always been a little bit of a thing. But I expect it to be like a little bit more out in the open, like where this is again. It's it's what people identify with. Like we we live in a world that has been stripped of enchantment like you know it's just it's get up go to work make money make more money most of your money's going to somebody else try to pay the bills and like the joy has been sucked out of everything it's all meaningless and so most of us make our own stories like we find if you're the sort of person who needs that spark to keep going you find a story that inspires you and you might not ask that story to be 100% real. A mermaid doesn't think that she's going to grow gills. A werewolf doesn't think that he's going to turn into a wolf at the, you know, full moon. But there's something about that story that speaks to your soul. And there's nothing wrong in, like, 
grabbing onto that and letting it be like, no, there are things about this, like with, with the, the folks that I know who identify as werewolves, that freedom of like their animal nature of just allowing themselves to be wild if they want to be and, you know, just go off and run in the woods if they want to. And, you know, not, not accept that civilization is the end all be all like that's like, go for it. (laughs) Like go for it. So now I know I need to seek out the Frankenstein community. I think that's where I belong. I mean, <laughs> as, as a personal note for me, I'm 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 a tran- I identify as a trans man, and I've always been very drawn to werewolves because it resonated. It it felt like a metaphor for that transformation into masculinity, the transformation out of something. Uh, to I'm going to sound very sexist, but for a lot of trans people, we we end up talking in these kind of strict binary archetype. Yeah, but it, it that that idea of being able to transform from something very soft and domestic and viewed as something tame and powerless into this unhinged primal force felt well. Honestly, it felt a lot like what turfs told me t- um, t shots were going to do to my body, and it's kind of like, well, fuck you. I want that actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I do think you're an unhinged primal force. So you got that going for you. There, there's a creator online, uh, they go by Super Dylan, uh, or just D-I-L-L-A-N, uh, and they have got some beautiful, like, microfiction that captures that with fam- w- w- with werewolves. Um, so if you can find them, like, on Twitter, find, find, their, find their stuff. Uh, for it, It's interesting, because, like, the identity groups that we have, um, that survey that I was talking about, with the vampire, it's androgyny and asexuality, uh, or non-binary sexuality, or no sexuality, because that's like, like vampires, as they're presented in, you know, in books and television are sort of like, they're human in appearance, but they sort of like move beyond a lot of human things. And multiple writers portray them as no longer sexual in a standard human way. For a lot of people, like that was a thing to like really cling on to. Like, finally, there's something that that like I can resonate with because like I like being, you know, attractive and I like having my magnetism, but not really into this other stuff. So you find a lot of non-binary, um, a lot of trans folks, a lot of queer folks in the vampire community. Uh, like again, that archetype speaks to them because there are layers to it that are permitted that are not permitted in a more mainstream setting. It, it's interesting because I'd never drawn that connection before, despite the fact that, I mean, for a long time, I've had the, you know, very basic liberal arts uh, English degree understanding of vampires typically tend to re- represent whatever the current culture fears sexually. And I, mm-hmm. I've never made that connection, you know, comp- considering the current political landscape and the current anti-trans uh, activism that's happening, or I'm going to call it madness. Um, oh, yeah. That's an interesting co- uh, connection that we hadn't made before. It, it it blew my mind a little bit because I also hadn't done that or hadn't put that comparison together, but it absolutely makes sense to me, especially when I think about my own history, uh, because I am a non-binary person and uh, we play a lot of role-playing games. And my favorite game for the longest time was Vampire the Requiem. And uh, I... I, I couldn't tell you, I couldn't have told you with, uh, with a gun to my head as to why I liked that game so much, other than I had a lot of fun. I thought it was really neat to be a vampire. And then there was mm-hmm. a period of time in which I, some of the people that I hung out with were convinced that I was a psychic vampire. And all of this now, as I came out, f- what, four or five years ago now, yeah, it's all starting to add up. Yeah. Realizing yeah, the- you're queer is like getting glasses for the first time. I'm so... <laughs> yeah seriously like i'm i'm intersex so like i'm a i'm a strange fish to begin with uh where i i don't fit in any of those boxes like like biologically psychologically anything um so vampire made a lot of sense for me of like nope you look like a person but you're not like anybody else <laughs> no thank you for that. that was very very interesting discussion um so moving into our next question here Another topic we discuss regarding vampires is how they come to kind of typify the culture's current relationship with death. 
so as a paranormal investigator and a psychic medium, we wanted to take a moment to get your take on that idea. Do you think that's remained true in regards to modern vampire fiction? And how would you characterize the modern relationship with mortality? Oh, okay. Wow, that's a that's a fun deep one. Um, so speaking from folklore and mythology with vampires, the core of the vampire is they are the dead that come back hungry for that which they no longer have. Uh, they they hunger for the life, for the joy, for uh, the beauty, and and things. So, over time, vampires are weirdly also connected to uh, contagion and disease, or at least beliefs in vampires. Uh, Paul Barber's Vampires, Burial, and Death is a a really eye-opening book on that. For uh, around the same time they had the witch craze going, there was also a vampire flap in similar parts of Europe, where at least they weren't burning people alive, they were digging them up. Uh, But People were dying of things like tuberculosis, syphilis, whatever, and you know things that would sweep through small communities. Uh, they would find a scapegoat. Uh, so the, the vampire, in the the common imagination, is often a representation of the death we are most afraid of, the death that is right around the corner, the death that cannot be controlled. It gets complicated with paranormal investigation because, in my opinion, all spirits, all all entities are technically vampiric. Anything can take your energy. Um, And things that are just energy, like, know better how to do it than your average person. Um, The anecdotal evidence that everybody's experienced at some point of, like, just the battery drain and the, the interference with electronic things. Where I don't think that they're necessarily getting any nutritional value out of those batteries, but by their nature, they interrupt and inter- interfere with that. Uh, something that stood out to me as somebody who who experiences uh, vampirism in a personal level, Harry Price, in his book on poltergeists, wrote about how prior to poltergeist activity, the spontaneous psychokinetic uh, activity in a location there was sort of this feel that like the residents would have like this sort of like tension on the air, this ramping up. But once it exploded, once something happened, the living people felt drained as if, and, and he posited that the spirits were taking something from people in order to have the, the ability to, to kinetically affect the, the physical world. I don't disagree with him. Um, but to go back to the question of like, do vampires represent death? How does that how does that represent stuff now? We're so saturated in pop culture media that I think it's a little less simple, because now the vampire could be Edward from Twilight, um, and that's way more about like what teen girls might find attractive than what anybody finds scary. Uh, you've got you know. 30 days of night vampires you've got let the white right one in vampires vampires are more a social commentary on not only the things that we fear but also the things that we fear being attracted to particularly once vampires became part of like paranormal romance and like these sort of more humanized characters and they weren't only the monsters uh there's and even when they were still the monsters like that if you watch the old 60s and 70s dracula movies dracula actually it's it's in stoker too the women who are infected with vampirism suddenly are much more uh, assertive much more sexual and openly sexual um and it's like they are given license by this this othering to to give in to their their sexual nature in victorian england that was scandalous um, and in the 60s and 70s it also like like just just look at the hammer films like like all you got to do is look at the scream queens and the hammer films and it's really obvious there is this weird sex and death mm, interaction yeah. there with the character um and just I think that that's still there, that that complication of like how we as living people are really complicated about what death does to us and takes from us. Well, and it, 
I, I don't know. I don't know where where this point is going, but um, it reminds me. I, I was just thinking of, uh, you know, the connection between sex and death. You have what is typically the procreative generative process, and then the end, almost alpha alpha omega. Uh, almost like the vampire in a way is representing kind of the totality of your existence here on Earth. One of the most fascinating takes on vampires I've ever seen are the ones that came out of Buffy the Vampire Slayer because this is this is something that's not common knowledge, I don't think, to people who haven't watched the entire show six times like I have. <laughs> but the vampires in that show are excluded not just from human society but from demon society because they're treated as, as abominations. Vampires mm -hmm. in that show are essentially human corpses that have this intertangled symbiotic relationship with some sort of parasitic non-physical demon and within the context of that of that show and the the other media that spun out from it most demons will not work with vampires or even willingly be around them in that show because they're treat I, I believe several times they're straight up called half-breeds by other monsters. And this, it, it does weirdly remind me of certain subsets of the queer community that are told like, yes, you're not straight, but you don't belong here either. Mm. And yeah. yeah, it's just, it, it's honestly with, if you really look at it, it's a very sad existence within that show because they're, they're, they didn't choose that, the vast majority of them, and they're excluded from every possible society that could give them shelter. Yeah, yeah you're a predator to these folks over here. You're a pariah to those. Just, mm -hmm. you know, go hang out in your mausoleum and be sad, little William. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the most fail vampire of all times, <laughs> William the Bloody, a.k.a. Spike. I love how pathetic he is. Uh. So actually, speaking of fiction, uh, we wanted to ask, yeah. Jay and I are fellow fiction writers, so we couldn't not bring up the fact that you're an accomplished author of both, of both nonfiction and fiction. So the question is, how much of your paranormal or spiritual uh, beliefs and experiences impact the fiction you write? A lot. A lot, a lot. Actually, one of the things that I will use the fiction for is, you know, sometimes you'll have an experience that you, you couldn't tell anybody, and they... And, and have them ever look at you like you were a sane human being again. Mm -hmm. um, or, or certain just theories. So sometimes I'll use fiction to theory craft and be like, what if this were real? Like, what would that look like? What would a world look like if this particular thing? Um, so I've got a, a, a trilogy called the Shadow Side series that grew completely out of my studies of the Book of Enoch, which is this weird, quirky offshoot of... Um, biblical literature about uh, Nephilim and Watcher angels and, and basically these angels that came and interbred with humanity. And I was like, well, well, what if they did? What would that look like now? Like, like, like what, what would that actually be? Um, and so fiction is sometimes where I play. Fiction is sometimes where I confess things that I wouldn't otherwise admit to in uh, an interview about my real life. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's just where I go to hold up a mirror to the world that we live in and and ask whoever's reading why do we do it like this yeah so it's it's so the answer there it seems like is that yes your uh, spiritual beliefs and your experiences do impact your fiction but it also goes the other direction your fiction helps contextualize the experiences you've had yeah yeah stories play a really big role in how i just work with reality like to me, it's all about the stories we tell ourselves at the end of the day. Uh, that's how we understand the world. Like myths are just the stories that we told to try to make sense of a world that didn't make sense to us. Uh, yeah. And you know, myths convey the meat, like the spirit of the experience, if not the fact of the experience. Uh, and God, so growing up, you know, as a person where I'm like, I think maybe I'm a psychic vampire. Of course, most of the only books that were out there were all fiction. And I'm, I'm of course, reading stuff just for, for any any option of like, could this be real? What does this look like? And every once in a while, I'd read somebody and I'm like, this person, this is fiction. But this section over here really sounds like something that like I've actually lived. Like, And when you're, you know, 14, 15, 
authors are these people up on a pedestal like they they are they're demigods they they really are oh yeah absolutely then you meet them and i've been in the position where i've gotten to actually meet several of the people whose stuff that i read where i'm like it seems like this person actually like maybe knows how magic works if you read a book and that's something that you think nine times out of ten the answer is yes that person practices that or experienced that, or it is definitely something that like they made a point of learning so that they could reflect in their fiction for whatever reason. Um, you know, from, from Laurel K. Hamilton, who's just very open about like she she takes her real life stuff and her, her personal beliefs and practices and puts it in uh, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, uh, who is an unsung heroine of uh, vampire novels with her St. Germain stuff and uh, Madeleine de Montaigne. Uh, I read her, I found her way more influential to me uh, than Anne Rice uh, growing up. And I had the great good fortune to become her friend also uh, as an adult and know that she's also someone who, like like all the mysticism, all the research, part of that is her life. We, we can't help when we tell stories, but to put some of ourselves in them. If we don't do it consciously, then we pull a Mary Shelley and just like basically do therapy all over the page. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting. I I never. I mean, I've I've been obsessed with horror literature pretty much my entire life. I still am. I was reading it just before I came here, and it, I've never thought about the idea, the fact that I mean, obviously, you know, people like uh, Lovecraft. Uh, he had some genuine occult beliefs. A lot of, especially as you were saying earlier, picture of Dorian Gray, Dr Dracula, those are somewhat inspired by real occult beliefs. But it almost seems like horror fiction has operated as kind of a cover for a subversive strain of green language uh, mm -hmm. that has kind of continued forward these beliefs into the modern day under the veil of fiction. For some people, it's definitely a whisper network. Um, it's sort of the modern alchemy. Now, it's important to note that's not true of every case. And it's, you know, it's important to understand that even when someone is like coding real stuff into their stories, they're still just telling a story, uh, but they're telling a story that is meaningful to them. Uh, and if magic is a part of your life, or if spirit communication is a part of your life, then you want to have your, these worlds that you create, this fiction that you create, look like the world that you live in. Um, you know, own voices is a, a big movement now. And, you know, it's not just about having books where you've got queer characters or non-binary characters. You also have books where you've got characters who are psychic and it's not some weird thing. It's just who they are. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I just, I really love horror literature because some, it's some of the most honest about how people are and how the world is. I I, uh, I couldn't agree more. All right, so moving into our uh, second to last question here. Uh, so another topic that we have encountered several times are is the suggestion that the paranormal community wasn't always and often still isn't as open and accepting as we might hope. So because you've had such a long career as a paranormal investigator, we wanted to ask, have you noticed a, a changing trend or a shift in these opinions within the paranormal community itself? And do you think the paranormal community is on a good foot currently? compared to where it might have oh. been. Hmm. It's a little bit better and it's a little bit worse. Um, I mean, first of all, it's great to see more people of color like in these spaces uh, because you just didn't before and it wasn't for a lack of people who had an interest in things. It was just a lack of access. Um, there's still... If you watch the television shows, it would certainly seem that the only people involved and interested in chasing ghosts are white guys in tight black t-shirts, white straight guys in tight black t-shirts, and that's it. And I, I can say that that's, that is a fault of the people who think ratings are more important than people. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so many there's guys there's, there's there's like entire queer teams there's mm -hmm. there's so many uh, like just yeah is it better than it was to some extent yes but it really depends on the group um and the team 
and the circle in which you work, uh, there is absolutely a, a threat of white supremacy in not only the paranormal community, uh, but it drives certain aspects of the new age community, certain parts of the magical community. And it has definitely been gaining ground. Um, and like that, that schism, if you're on the ground, like you can see it, like, you know, oh yeah, you know who to avoid, <laughs> like, like it's pretty obvious. Uh, but I would say that people on both sides of those rifts have gotten louder. And, uh, you know, for those of us who just want to exist as we are, uh, out of protection, out of, out of just, you know, the yawping a mighty yawp in the spirit of Walt Whitman, <laughs> like declare your existence to the world, mm -hmm. um, versus folks who just want to silence and make everything look, I don't know, smooth, just bland. It's like they want to pave the world. It's, it's terrible to me. Um, the paranormal community still tends to default to a very Christian viewpoint about how they interpret spirits and what's a good or a bad spirit. And while there is at least a little bit more dialogue, um, it still has a lot, a long way to go. Um, <clears throat> and I would say that that sort of like filters down to a lot of other points that could be more open-minded. Uh, I remember it was an episode of Paranormal State we were doing, and um, none of this really made it to the to the episode because production companies are production companies, and they're always gonna. Th this was too much, <laughs> so the family had a little girl, and the actual haunting. Um, the family was worried at first that the child was possessed, but what came out was that the possession was the child was talking about having been a boy when she was alive with her brother in Florida when they were hit by a car. And this kid had enough clarity of memory that they knew where they lived. They named the type of vehicle their mom was driving. Um, they knew their name. Um, they, they, they just, they were a classic case of a child remembering a past life. Um, Dr. Ian Stevenson, if he'd still been around, like would have been on it. Um, and it didn't have anything to do with demons at all. But reincarnation and the fact that there was a gender swap with this kid, um, that she definitely still was showing a lot of those, like she was very much, she was a tomboy. Um, I don't know where she is in her life now, what she identifies as, but at that point, the, the gender confusion was also a cause of concern for the family. They were worried again that that was demonic. Yeah, no, like, like so, so these are things, there's deeper conversations that we need to have about why do we assume it's a demon when we should maybe have a conversation about why we think everything different is demonic. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, that's a lot to think about there. Um, thank you for that answer. We have only one more question, and it should be the easiest one. What's next for Michelle, and where can people find your work? Oh, okay. Let's see. Um, I have been writing a bunch of little fun games uh, on my Itch.io page under Zosh Darkheart, uh, including Rainbow Bridge and Boneyard and a horror novella that is a mix between... Uh, think of it like a choose your own adventure taken to the next level. It's a journaling game. Ooh, um, I had a lot of fun doing it, and we are currently turning it into an audiobook. Uh, Very cool. The most recent thing that I released is a deck of cards for spirit communication called Haunted Voices. Uh, think of it like um, an analog ovalis. And otherwise, just Look for me on michellebelanger.com. And if you don't speak French, that's michellebelanger.com. <laughs> Thank you. I needed that, you know, for me. Uh, <laughs> it almost sounded like it pained you to say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so, so much for giving us your time today. This has been fascinating. We had a great time. We hope you did as well. We can give you back the rest of your evening. <laughs> this is fun.
take a walk with us. <laughs>